Hello, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I have, dare I say, a baby on the grill. I have the great uh, psychotherapist Robin Grill from Australia. So I am actually in pitch black darkness with, uh, you can't see, of course, in my home studio, but outside the snow is gently and, dare I say, beautifully falling down, while Robin has kindly informed me that he's just returned from the beach where things are beautiful. So the first uh, the first part of the show will be me gently sobbing while Robin attempts to console me using all of his therapeutic <laughs> techniques known to man. So thank you so much for taking the time. <laughs> Your turn will come, don't you worry. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's very good to be with you, Stefan. So, um, I mean, there's a lot to talk about, but I really want to focus. You have, uh, you have two books. I mean, one, one that came out um, more recently and one that came out in 05. Yeah. Uh, Parenting for a Peaceful World was 05 and Heart to Heart Parenting um, it just came out, just came out this, this spring or this summer. And well, the Australian, really the, to... the, 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 um, the Australian edition came out in 2008, but I've just released an American edition that's been translated into American English. And that just came out literally a couple of months ago in, um, Amazon and book depository. Okay. Okay. Good. Now, the one thing that uh, you know I criticize libertarians and philosophers about is to not focus in, uh, enough on early childhood experiences and to focus on the myth of human nature. And I think that you do a fantastic job, as other people I've interviewed on the show have done, of exploding the myth of human nature. And you know, to paraphrase, and you know, please correct me if I go astray, but to paraphrase, it's something like human nature is adapt is an adaptation to early environment that is earlier than we can remember. Because it happens in the womb, it happens in our first few years of life before memories really set within us. And because we can't remember what it was like to be formed by those experiences, it seems like human nature to us. Because we don't have an alternative, to, we don't have a magic other self yeah. we can compare ourselves to, race in a different family. Yeah. And penetrating this myth of human nature seems to be really, really difficult. It's hard for me, it's hard for you, it's hard for Lloyd DeMoss. It seems to be really quite a wall that we beat our heads against sometimes. Look, there's all kinds of reasons why there's a wall. People resist uh, this new kind of discovery because it's so confronting, it's so threatening. You know, the more that we start to consider how important early childhood is and even adolescence, how formative that stage of life is, it is frightening particularly for, for mums and dads because responsibility is frightening. Um, you know, it presses a lot of buttons to do with guilt, etc. So... People actively, uh, when I say people, not everyone, but there's a lot of resistance in the media, especially against this kind of um, science. And, and the, the science, about the science, you can say that in many ways the, the jury is back. There's not really an academic debate anymore. Um, early childhood is incredibly formative. Uh, if we're going to talk about human nature, it is intrinsic to human nature that human nature is changeable, very, very changeable, uh, and most changeable in early childhood because of the way that our environment writes really a story or a program into our very uh, neurology, into our brains, into our brain chemistry. Uh, and now with a new science of epigenetics, what's being understood that even our genes are subject to change. Did you know that? that genes can be switched on and off in early childhood, completely changing our genetic profile according to how life is treating us when we're very, very young. Yeah, and this is something that uh, I 
I've read and actually Gabor Mate has been on my show and, and his book in the realm of hungry ghosts I hugely recommend he talks a lot about this this idea when I was a kid of course your genes were like a rock in the ocean and yeah. and the environment was like waves crashing on it it may adjust it a little bit but you had this fun fundamental piece of physics called your genetics and now it seems that I mean okay so your early childhood experiences don't determine whether you have a nose or not I, I give that to the genes I really will uh, but uh, just about everything to do with our personality uh, the genes are switched on or off depending on our experience that's potentiality but there is not actuality until the genes are combined with experience. And, and all throughout life, this can change. You can start reprogramming your genes into your middle, middle of your life. Yes, and I don't know how deliberately you can reprogram your genes. That's, um, you know, there's so much still to be learned. But definitely the environment has a very, very, very significant impact. And what they're saying now is that the old idea of genetic determinism is, is really a form of genetic illiteracy. Um, so... Uh, yeah, we we are really throwing out that old idea. There's uh the, the very nature of evolution is quite different than uh, than what we thought. Now this is something that it seems hard to believe is hard to believe. <laughs> the reason I say that is that anybody who's turned on the TV, read a book, uh, used a computer knows that there are very different cultures out there, and everyone in those cultures kind of believes a lot of the same stuff, wears a lot of the same disco bondage headgear or whatever they put on, worships a lot of the same deities and has a lot of the same attitudes. And we all know that if, you know, if I was born over in some backwater village in Afghanistan, that I would not grow up speaking English. I would not grow up with ideas that I have. I would grow up with very different ideas and have a very different relationship to reality, to society, to ethics, to community and so on. So we can see all of this stuff happening all over the world at the adaptability of human beings to their environment, and yet somehow we feel that we did not adapt in the same way to our environment. Is that, it's, it's hard to miss once you look at it, even just in terms of culture across the world. Yeah, and, and here's where information, and even something that is very, very obvious, doesn't necessarily by itself change the way that we do things in the world. Because when you start to think that, for instance, your, you know, to some degree, your mental health, the thing that we call your mental health, uh, is, is in some degree a reflection of the way that you were parented. Uh, more importantly, the way that your, your parents were taken care of or not taken care of by their community. Because it's not just up to mum and dad, by the way, it's the entire community. You know, when you think in those terms, when you think that even the human propensity to violence whether we have violent attitudes or, or if we're violent in our behavior, that that has quite a bit to do with the way that we were schooled and the way that we were raised as children. Now you're talking about something that nobody wants to, to really look at in the eye because that is a frightening concept. And we, we play all kinds of mental gymnastics to, to avoid that, no matter how much science we, we have in front of us. So I think it'll take quite some time for that information to really sink in and start to to create some of the changes that we need to see in the world. You do see a lot of this, um, I think, a reversal of cause and effect. So you'll hear people say, well, I had to spank him because he was a difficult child. In other words, that the, yeah. the, the nature of the child came first and then the, the parent is like this this helpless asteroid orbiting the, the giant planet of, of the child's personality, uh, whereas, of course, I think the argument would much more strongly be made that the, 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 the behaviors of the environment, and again, we want to 
avoid just talking about parents because, um, uh, I mean, for instance, um, uh, sociopathy, uh, which is, I think, 4% and rising rapidly in most of the Western countries, is down to like 0.04% in Thailand. And that's not specific to, to parenting. That's specific to the culture as a whole. Uh, so it's really important to remember that there's culture. But the, the culture, the attitudes of the environment come first. And that's always the place to look when you're looking at the behavior of children. But people take the behavior of children as fixed and they're just helpless in trying to manage or control it. Yeah, I mean, uh, in a way, what you're saying, I think, is that so many people feel like they're, um, which, I mean, in terms of the rationaliz rationalization, the, the stories that we tell ourselves about why we must hit our children, for instance, you know, we, we think of ourselves as victims to our little child. You know, because my child behaved in this way or that way, I had no choice but to hit my child. And... Um, Look, this really opens up so much about what I think is a, an enormous need to not only educate parents, but to support and support and support parents. And we are not doing that anywhere near enough. And I think in many ways, the European countries, in particular, the, the northern European countries, are way ahead um, in, the, in that area. You know, in, in most European nations now, for one, it's against the law for any parent to hit a child. 33 countries in the world and 25 more coming online where it will be against the law. But they don't just prohibit, they support. They, um, I'll give you one example. In Sweden, um, a mother will be paid very generously 80% of whatever she was earning professionally before the birth of her child. She is paid to stay with her child for 18 months and then has the option to go on for three years. Uh, at a at a slightly reduced rate of pay. Fathers as well, one month on full pay to stay with their child after birth. And this just gives you one example of the kind of support that is available that we should make available for our families so that we we can hold, you know, if, if community holds parents, any parent can be better at holding their child, uh, including setting of strong, you know, I'll say asserting strong boundaries of behavior with our children in a way that, has nothing to do with punishment. Right. Now, there's a lot about nurturing in your work, which, of course, is, is really hard to, to argue against. But um, one of the things that I found very interesting in your article on, on bullies uh, that showed up yeah. in um, Everything Voluntary was, right. and I'm wondering if, if, I don't know if you have the research at the tip of your tongue, but uh, if you could talk a little bit more, I found it quite fascinating that uh, the, the need to denormalize the way that you were parented uh, seems to be very important. And part of that denormalizing process seems to be getting angry about it. And the people who actually get angry about injustices that were committed against them as children seem to be the ones most capable as adults of parenting in a different way than they were parented. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, because anger is one of these things that people who've suffered trauma especially from, you know, really, quote, angry people, they have a difficult relationship. They view anger as abusive. But the idea that anger can be liberating, break the cycle, be healing is really yeah. counterintuitive to a lot of people. Yeah. Look, I want to say first to, to, to uh, preface that anger and violence are not the same thing. And I really want to make that clear. The reason why we tend to associate the two is that for a lot of us, when we were growing up, if somebody in our family became angry, that was very quickly followed by some kind of physical violence or, or verbal abuse and yet the two are, are, are not really related in fact i think that we tend to become more violent towards one another when we don't find a safe way to express our frustration and our anger and when you think of it that way anger can actually be 
um, a builder of a relationship and, and, a, and, a, and a builder of love, really. It's a, it's a force for creating understanding when understanding is lost. Uh, now, having said that, there is some very interesting research, plus I find this over and over again in my practice as a psychologist. I've been um, working in my private practice for about 20, 25 years. The people that were at the receiving end of physical punishment when they were children, if they grow up never challenging the belief or the rationale, rationale that I was hit because I deserved it, because I was a brat, those are the people that are most likely to then pass that on to their children without the, the empathy. Those are the people that will strike their children and say, look, it, it did me good. Um, whereas, you know, you can end this cycle of intergenerational abuse that gets passed down from one generation to another when you help any individual to reject that kind of treatment. Whether you become angry about it or not, that's really, it's really up to the individual's process. Um, and I, I strongly feel this, this has nothing to do with condemning our parents and saying what bad people they were, you know. Every parent in the world does the best that they have available given the time and the culture in which they live. Um, and however, if there's going to be any social evolution, we must at some point reject some aspects of what was handed down to us. So I, I meet all of the people who say, look, I love my mum and dad dearly. You know, They gave me so much, but I reject their style of discipline. That was authoritarian, it was painful, it hurt. I didn't really learn anything good from that. I learned great things from other things that my parents did. You know, to say no to that treatment, now you become the kind of person that is far less likely to pass it on. Do you think, I mean, I appreciate that argument. Do you, do you think that it's reasonable or true to say that all parents are doing the best they can? I mean, I, I agree that a lot of parents are. I think a lot of parents obviously struggle to improve or even struggle to maintain. I think there are probably a minority, a significant minority, but I think there are sort of cruel and sadistic and abusive parents out there who are not struggling to do better or who aren't trying to improve, but just acting out in very, very negative ways. I mean, because there is this idea that, that, you know, we would never say about all husbands in the world are doing the best. No, there are some sort of sadistic and cruel husbands who just grind their wives down and, you know, with sociopaths and monsters and so on. And however a minority they may be, it seems Look, like whenever um, yeah, psychologists talk I, about parents, we um, go to... There is, this is very, very nuanced and very difficult for me to... I, I want to treat this delicately. Mm -hmm. There is potentially... An, Look, on the one hand, no doubt, there's no question. There is definitely all kinds of psychopathic parents, abusive parents, sadistic parents, parents who take um, like a perverse pleasure in, in um, tormenting their children. Generally speaking, though, um, and, and this is something that I find very important to say to people when I'm running my, my workshops, my public seminars, is that very often you can take what people generally call a bad parent, okay, if you can see the quotation marks, bad parent, and really improve their, their capacity to be parents and to be good listeners by placing that parent in a different environment where they feel much more supported. You know, partly it's to do with better information about child development um, and communication style, etc. But to a large degree, it's to do with, with what kind of support is going on around the parent. Um, 
and uh, sometimes it's more than support. Sometimes it, it requires a healing process for for parents who have had very traumatic childhoods um, that often, you know, find it so much more of a struggle to be able to stay present for for the sometimes chaotic behaviour of a child. So uh, similarly, on the other hand, you can take somebody that would ordinarily be what we call a good parent and and put them in an environment where they are robbed of support and really highly overstressed and too many demands of on them and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, good people start to lash out. We lose our temper with our children. We we push them. We um, we ignore them. We, we uh, emotionally abandon them. So, um, you know, I think it's important to get this because I think this is one of the big antidotes to this huge problem of parent guilt that stops parents from being willing to learn um, and to take the help of their environment. Um, you know, you can't just judge one parent without looking at the context um, that that parent finds themselves in. Yeah, I mean, psychologically, I mean, certainly in terms of legality, I mean, you you can. I mean, if the child is a pedophile, so if the parent is a pedophile or rampantly abusive, they generally get tossed in jail without a lot of context. But certainly from sort of working things through, I would certainly agree that I can't imagine somebody who went through a good childhood. And it's, it's a very powerful statement that you make in, in your book uh, that somebody who goes through a peaceful, loving, nurturing, supportive environment. Yeah can in no way become a violent person. I mean, that's a bold, bold claim. And certainly we would look at bad parents and, and we would certainly look in their history. And, you know, if you understand enough about someone's history, nothing is alien anymore. Everything sort of, there's a series of dominoes that make sense. But um, do you yeah. feel it's that? I, I feel it's that possible. I mean, I feel unless somebody gets a brain tumor or some horrible railway spike through the forehead, uh, that the yeah. the personality that is raised peacefully must be peaceful, and that there's no other way to to create a sustainably peaceful world. I think so. And, and if that statement sounds very very bold, I I am willing to to stick to it. You know, for as long as we understand what we understand today about the developmental impact on the human brain. You know, they have such a clear map now for for how the human brain can be can be turned into a more violent prone brain so uh, let's talk other, about other, some of the uh, sorry to, let's talk about some of the science um uh, behind this uh, i'm i love science particularly the new brain stuff it's just completely fascinating uh, so a lot of people of course it takes a while for stuff to filter down from the lab to the general population particularly when it's such a thorny issue as yeah. as uh, parents and children where is the science these days in epigenetics and in the formation of um, antisocial personalities and so on where is the science yeah, because, uh, sorry, um, let, me, let me be slightly more specific. Um, so, um, obviously, a, a lot, a huge number of steps have been taken, a huge number of steps forward have been taken in helping people and researchers to understand how particular uh, impulses, well, we all have impulses, and you have, what, like a quarter of a second between the impulse arising from the amygdala to the neofrontal cortex, which is supposed to damp it down and say, whoa, it's not a free will, it's a free won't. I won't do this. I'm going to take a breather. I'm going to count to 10 or whatever to intercept the impulses, which does seem to be something that is strengthened by uh, therapy, by self-knowledge, uh, by, by self-work of, of various kinds, introspection. 
So there does seem to be a fair amount of brain mapping about what goes on with impulse, impulse control, uh, acting out, and ex post facto justifications for behavior. They seem to have peered quite far under the hood uh, these days. I don't know if you've scoured uh, the, the periodicals or the publications for that stuff, but um, I was wondering if, if you have any particular science that struck you as, as supportive of the thesis. There's, there's uh, uh, quite an abundance of that science, actually, and it's being studied very carefully in American universities, British universities. Um, I'll, I'll tell you something very interesting. Um, who's the guy that did Ali G and Borat? Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. He has a very interesting cousin. I forget his first name, but his surname is the same. Uh, somebody, Baron Cohen, and he's a professor of uh, neuropsychology in, uh, in Cambridge University. He's recently published a, a book called The Science of Evil. And uh, he, he is one of many, many new scientists of the brain that explain this quite clearly. They do have quite a clear map for human violence because of the new um, uh, imagery technology that we have where we can see exactly what's going on in there. Let me explain it in one way. The central part of the brain called the limbic brain is like the generator of raw emotion. Okay. And an analogy that I like, it generates 240 volts of raw emotion. Now, there are parts of the forebrain, the bits that sit behind your, uh, your well, above your eyebrow in, the, in that, you know, the frontal lobes. That works like a transformer, okay? Its role is to take the 240 volts of raw emotion and to transform it down into 12 volts so that we can have relationship. You know, we have these transformers in garden lights, in toy, uh, hobby trains. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, the, the stuff, the yeah. little box that makes your notebook not explode when you plug it into the wall. So, yeah. that Exactly. We've got the same kind of thing in our own brain. So, if it wasn't for this, we, we would be more like chimpanzees. And, in fact, a lot of us act, are. I think we behave like chimpanzees. We act out all of our rage indiscriminately. Um, However, a healthy person that has had nurturance, um, sufficient nurturance, respect, a democratic enough upbringing, etc., etc., when that part of the brain is healthy, um, by the way, I should tell you this, the reason why toddlers have big tantrums, they have the full 240 volts of emotion, one and a half hours of rage on the floor. You know, where they go speechless, and you've seen that, you know, most children get that, is because that part of the brain, the frontal lobes, don't reach any kind of maturity until we're about five or six, and then it kind of plateaus. That's when we start to learn to put our emotion into language, so that even if I feel like kicking somebody, I can contain that impulse and go up to that person and say, hey, I'm upset, and this is what I want different. So Yeah, I, I, I made the case uh, that uh, for parents need to teach their children feeling words in the same way that they need to. And for the same reason, they need to teach them not to go near a hot stove or cross a busy street because this is what keeps you safe and, and connected in the world is to translate impulses to words so that you, ne you can negotiate rather than bully. But sorry, that's just a minor aside. But I think that's oh. parent, parents don't work on the, the feeling words with children. It's the most essential thing you can do as a parent outside of food and shelter. Absolutely, absolutely. I cannot think of a more important thing to teach our children than how to navigate conflict in a, in a loving and helpful and democratic way. And the best way to teach that is by example, so that instead of just telling them, to show them. 
you know, if we, if we can have our conflict, say with our partner, our spouse, and with our child present, but to, to do so by using our language and to hear each other, taking turns, listening to one another, making sure that we, we both feel very, very heard, you know, that, that, is, that is a very, very, very powerful way for, for our children to learn and that really this stuff is recorded for them. By the way, the, those, um, you know, those frontal lobes that reduce emotion to, to a harmless language that really makes connection with each other, that, reaches, that does not reach its full maturity until we're about 23, 24 years of age, which explains why um, teenagers as well can be risk takers and, and a lot of their emotionality can be quite, uh, quite I guess, fiery. You could say yeah, the, the it's, it's kind of a paradox. That, yeah, but it's kind of a yeah. paradox because when you're a teenager, you actually have more life to lose, and you treat it like I used to do these crazy triple flip dives off diving boards when I was on the swim team, and so on. I mean, you, there's not enough money in the world to get me to do that now, and I have less to lose because I'm much older. But yeah, no, the consequences can seem a little bit over the horizon when you're a teenager. Oh, sometimes I lay awake at night thinking about the things I used to do as a teenager. And, oh, and you know, cold sweats. Yeah, it's terrible. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. My, my daughter is a teenager now, so, uh, you know, that makes me bite my nails, I tell you. <laughs> I bet. I bet. I bet. So, um, yeah, but, but the, the, the clincher here, Stefan, is that the way that that, that transformer in the, in the brain, the way that that grows, that's not just a given program that's not just going to happen it can be grown in early childhood based on the way that we are treated as children it it can also be eaten away you know when you leave a child in in a high state of, of fear in a violent environment you know the stress hormones like cortisol that sit in the brain without being comforted without going away they they're sort of like battery acid after a while they they literally kill they eat, eat the brain cells and make that part of the brain smaller so that we lose impulse control. And if you take a violent psychopath, a criminal who's in jail for out-of-control violence, and you take a, 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 an image, a magnetic resonance image of their brain, you will see great dark holes in precisely that part of the brain. And you'll understand that the psychopath is built not born, but built. Well, and one of the things that, if you sort of compare to, to ape-like behavior, one of the things that is profoundly human, I would argue, is, is to look for win-win negotiations. Uh, but in a hierarchy, in a pecking order, it's always win-lose, you know, like, uh, and, and you become addicted to the, the dopamines of climbing the, the social hierarchy. And it's been, I think, quite well proven in monkeys that as they get up the hierarchy, they get more happy joy juice in the brain and so on. But the, 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 the need to reduce emotionality to, and, and transfer it to language is so that you can work on win-win negotiations. But it's always struck me that, you know, criminals, particularly in gangs, are hypersensitive to status, you know, to being disrespected, to, to being looked down upon. And, and the maintenance of juice or street credibility is so important. But that's because it's, it's all win-lose. Without the language of emotionality, everything becomes, you know, kill or be killed, rule or be ruled, win or lose. And I think that's truly tragic. Were you talking about criminal gangs then or about Wall Street? I uh, I think that may be a, a distinction without a difference. Uh, the, the, ba the, the, the bad criminal gangs are, are at the bottom of the towers. The really good criminal gangs are right up at the top. Yeah, 
Look, I think uh, human psychopathy um, is on both sides of the law, really. I think that's been well established. And, uh, you know, oh, my God, I mean, the, the, the global financial collapse that we've just had and we're still suffering from, that, that's all part of the symptom, you know, of this top-down power kind of mentality that really permeates a lot of the way that we do business, not just how we do war and, 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 and crime, but th this, is, this is a lot of how we do business. I'll also uh, propose that this is, to some degree, regrettably, how we do education as well. Let's talk about that because I think that's, um, we, we, again, we don't want to focus overly on the parents because they're kind of a given, but most yeah. kids spend more time with educators than they do with parents. They spend more time with teachers and priests and, and daycare workers and so on than they do even with their own parents. But that's not something that's often explored when it comes to personality formation. Yeah, not only that, they spend more time in front of a TV set than with their parents, but that's a whole other story. Uh, yeah. But yeah, look, in, in, in the classroom, you know, I, I, I'm so glad that I'm not a teacher and my heart goes out to school teachers. Here's what a teacher has to do. And I don't know how it is in Canada, but in Australia, a teacher has to arrive in front of a classroom of 30 children um, and, and teach this subject. And, you know, you're expected to, you know, you can imagine that half of the, the kids sitting in front of you are interested in what you have to talk about. Half of them naturally won't be. Your job is to force them to do it anyhow and, and to force them to do well and then to be subjected to what is potentially a very shaming ranking and, and comparison. So the kids will find out who's coming top, who's coming fifth, who's doing better than you, who's doing worse than you. Um, uh, it, it's about beating, who beats who. And, and a teacher's supposed to run that. So we, you know, as teachers, I think they're enforcers. These children don't get any right um, until they're at least 15 to have a say, to have a voice in, mm. this is what my passion is. This is what I want to learn. And if, I, if I'm passionate about mathematics and the bell goes, I don't want to stand up and leave and go to geography. I was, I was doing some algebra. I was in love with this. I want to stay with this. There is, there's nothing that really respects the natural passion of the child in the way that we ordinarily do schools. Now, if you think that I'm being romantic and idealistic, uh, I've been looking at schools that don't do this, schools that are increasingly using what's called the emergent curriculum. And this is a growing phenomenon around the world where uh, more and more the subject that is being given to a child to study relates to what that child's individual passion is so that the curriculum is adapted to the child. Not all the kids are studying the same thing. They're not learning in the same way. They learn in subgroups based on a shared interest. What is really interesting to me is that these schools around the world, and there are many in America, many in, in, in uh, Israel, in Japan, in Australia, New Zealand, and through Europe, under all kinds of different names. The reason why these kinds of schools began, and if you like, I'll tell you what they're called, very, a whole bunch of different names. They did this for academic reasons because children tend to do better without being coerced and pushed and punished for not doing what the teacher tells them. And yet, they all report to me a very similar, unexpected effect. You know what happens in those schools? School violence starts to drop and mm. it plummets. And not only in the classroom, but also in the playground. Um, right. So that 
I, I, you know, my proposition here is that the democratization of education, the democratization of the classroom, is is actually a very, very viable treatment for social violence. And this has been done. They've brought in democratic educators into violent schools and turned the school around from a very, very violent bullying environment where the, the students are even beating up on the teachers uh, and um, and completely turning that around. As one yeah. Israeli educator explained to me, and he, and he put it so well, you know, it's, it, this is not rocket science. When children feel really, really valued for who they are as, as, as persons, for their passions and their interests, they don't want to beat each other up. They don't want to waste time beating each other up. They, they just love to work. Yeah, no, I, of course, I mean, I'm sure you're aware that the, the history of what we call modern education, at least in the public sphere, yeah. uh, it, it comes directly out of the Prussian desire to breed soldiers and low-rent factory workers who who sit, who listen, who obey. Uh, it is part of the um, dehumanizing process that the modern military goes through, and it is unbelievably tragic. I've made the argument, I think you would probably agree, I mean, tell me if you don't, but uh, what people experience as childhood is the future of the society. Like how we treat children is how our society is going to go. And if we treat children as prisoners, if we put them in these boxes designed by prison experts and we pass them through metal detectors and we order them around exactly what they should do with no input from them and we ask them to raise their arm to do something as simple as go to the bathroom, we are creating a mini little fascistic environment and then we look at the world and we wonder why uh, totalitarianism is on the rise, why individual liberty is on the decline. It's because we are training our children to be in, in a fascist environment. They come out into uh, into the adult world completely unprepared for anything to do with the free market and the tendency is for them to recreate that environment because it's not identified as, as abnormal or dysfunctional in any general way. Sorry, if that's a big rant, but that's the end of it. Uh, yeah, I hear you. And, and uh, you know, th th there's, there's a distinct kind of military model behind the organization of, of uh, education as we know it. There is also an industrial kind of um, uh, reasoning behind it as well, you know, modern schools have, have also been strongly influenced by the Industrial Revolution. I mean, the early Industrial Revolution, the, you know, the steam-driven, mm -hmm. you know, coal-driven kind of stuff. And, um, you know, where we don't really trust uh, children's intrinsic passion. We don't want them to connect to that. We want them to think about money. We want them to think about success in terms of money. And we want them to be followers um, either that or, or, or money-motivated leaders. Uh, you know, we are, we are churning them out in a kind of an assembly line process um, in order that not industry doesn't serve community, but children serve industry. We're trying to, to, to breed the next kind of generation of, you know, if we want more engineers, we better train the kids to be engineers and don't <laughs> bother asking them, don't bother asking them who they really are as people. And that's violent. That in itself is where I call that educational abuse. It is yep. an act of yep. violence. Without anyone lifting a finger, it's an act of violence. And of course, as you said, then we, then we complain and blame the kids. Oh, look how bad they are. In my day, they used to call me sir. Come on. What are we calling them? 
Yeah. Well, and if we if we hollow out the children enough, and there's a wide variety of ways that schools and churches, I think, do that. If we hollow out the children enough, then they'll become empty, shallow, status-seeking consumerists who will drive the ridiculous overconsumption of a very shallow economy, which it's currently geared towards. And anyway, so it is, uh, you know, we, we don't teach them about, you know, the, the, the satisfactions of, of quality, of virtue, of, of kindness. Uh, we teach them that, uh, you know, these shoes are really cool and this is a great uh, backpack to have, and 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 this starts really early on. If you've got the logo on your lunchbox when you're five, for God's sakes, and we teach. Of course, this is all about consumption and the harm it does to the economy, the harm it does to the environment. Uh, all of this ridiculous stuff uh, is is incalculable. If you read some of the advertising textbooks that talk about children in this most reptilian way, that children are children are a market. I mean, these people know exactly what you can expect a three-year-old child to spend based on the kind of money that they can nag out of the parent's pocket. So, um, yeah, I mean, there are big sectors of the economy that are driven by what we can make children want that they wouldn't otherwise ordinarily want. So they're our market, they're our future workforce. We, we tend to mold them and, um, you know, and... But on the other hand, it absolutely doesn't have to be this way. And, and there are so many really, really good examples of schools like the Reggio Emilia system, um, the democratic schools in, in Israel, the uh, what they call the free schools in, in Japan that are almost run by the children. And they, I mean, those kids behave really, really well. They ask for homework. They study. They want to learn. They're self-driven, self-motivated, you know, and... I thought we wanted self-motivated children. If we want self-motivated children, then do you know the kindest thing to do to a child is to say, what do you love? What do you love? Because if that's what you love, then let's help you to, to do more of it and to learn more about that particular subject matter. Yeah, how can I facilitate your interests? How can I be the grease in the wheels of your engine of discovery? Uh, but uh, there is, of course, and this comes out of as a grand Western tradition. It's not just a Western tradition, but I'm more familiar with it. The idea that, of course, there's something wrong with children, you see. Um, Robin, you have to understand there's something wrong with children because they don't fit into the existing hierarchy. They're not born believing in a particular deity or a particular country or a particular culture or a particular political system or a particular economic system. They're born natural, rational empiricists. At least I've worked in a daycare for many years. I have a kid. Uh, and uh, they're born natural, curious, rational empiricists. But so yeah. many of the beliefs of adults cannot sustain the simple Socratic scrutiny of the toddler set. I mean, the questions that come come to your thighs, uh, the hardest ones of all to answer. I mean, trying to explain the world to my daughter is really, really difficult because it's a pretty nutty place to be sometimes. So so the idea, of course, is that because children um, are not fitting into the irrationalities of society, the children must be broken because the society is broken. Otherwise, the brokenness of the society is, is revealed, and that's very hard for the adults. You know, so many people say to me, how do I get my child to learn? How do I get my child to learn? And I think, you know, in fact, what we should be asking is how, how do we get them to stop when it's time for them to go to sleep? <laughs> you know, these guys are just incredibly ravenous little scientists, you know, and, and, and I'm sure you'll, you'll uh, know exactly what I'm talking about when I say I remember the first science question that my daughter asked me when she was four years old, and um, which, of course, I did not know the answer to. She wanted to know, you know, why the sky is blue. And um, I, I, I muttered some kind of, nonsense about um, 
you know, refraction of light or whatever that I could remember from high school physics. And the next question is, well, why? Yeah. And everything I said is, why? You know, this incessant hunger for more knowledge and more knowledge. Yeah. And at one point, let me just turn off this phone. At one point, my daughter asked me, um, and she was, again, she was four years old. She said, Dad, when will I learn everything? <laughs> you know, this kid just wanted to know the whole universe. And oh, yeah. uh, this, is, this is not peculiar to my daughter at all. This is everywhere. And if, uh, if only we look at that. Um, but, you know, I, I, I want to go back to something you said earlier where, where you mentioned that the world is, is uh, becoming more and more dictatorial. I, I have a different view of that. I, I, I think that, I mean, this is really, really surprising. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't think so. I, I actually think that the world is becoming more, um, less violent overall as an average. Um, although you look at any newsreel uh, or infotainment, you know, Fox News or whatever, and you'd think the opposite. Um, but in terms of, you know, when you look at the, the work done by political scientists and they look at, you know, in, in a very, very assiduous way, the, the changing statistics of crime around the world, uh, the, the impact of warfare, the, the uh, percentage of people dying as a result of battle, even with all this terrorism and the war on terror and blah, blah, blah. Overall, as a proportion of populations, it seems to be getting less less and less and crime rates are, are beginning to fall and I, I, I think that even though look personally I feel I have so much to that I feel critical of and, and, and I complain so much about the way that we treat children we treat them like a marketplace to sell something to and we push them around and we hit them blah blah every time that I look at the history of parenting and I find like Lloyd DeMouse was saying and he's so right the further we go back in history the worse it seems to get you know, this generation, for all of our mistakes, we seem to have taken one quantum, ste quantum step forward from the last generation in terms of at least making some honest effort to, to um, look into the emotional needs of our children. We, we want to be more than just providers of a roof and food and education. We're trying to learn how to address their emotional needs and their emotional intelligence. This is very, very new in human history. Now, I think that we have started to see some dividends for that already around the world because, um, you know, really statistically, I think violence is falling. Democracy is growing, even though the growth of democracy is very up and down. But overall, the number of countries around the world that are um, at least submitting their political parties to a vote every four years, primitive as that sounds, um, that seems to be growing. What do you think? Yes, of that? and I, yeah, I, I think, <clears throat> I, I agree with that. Now, of course, you know from Damas's work that um, the growth anxiety that comes from improved parenting from the elder generation is is pretty considerable. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I was, I, I used the word sort of dictatorial, but <clears throat> by that, I simply mean lots and lots of rules. I mean, the the amount of laws in the world is is growing exponentially every year. Um, I don't mean that it's like um, Soviet Russia or, you know, Pol Pot's regime. It's obviously not murderous and genocidal in that way. But my my sort of major concern is I think that, that parenting is in some ways getting better. I mean, I agree with you and Emma with the master. Historically, it was wretched. But I mean, still in America, 90 percent of parents are hitting their children. I mean, that's just still a long way, a long way to go. Yeah, and but for me, for me, the major issue is that uh, I was sort of explaining to my daughters interested in my family history, and my family history is intertwined in, in particular, in the two 
world wars uh, in. Of course, I'm not going into much detail <laughs> about any of that, but uh, there were big fights, you see. Yeah. And, um, and, and I actually am the first generation in a long time who hasn't suffered through of my family hasn't suffered through some cataclysmic war. And like, that is great. Uh, I think that's fantastic. And that is a step yeah. forward. I mean, uh, whether it's due to nuclear weapons or the fact that the moneyed classes can print money through the Federal Reserve rather than having yeah. to go steal it from other people. But the amount of debt, the amount of intergenerational predation that's going on, the, I think, coming increases in social frictions in Europe and, and in North America in particular with um, uh, the, the collapsing economies and so on. I think there has been a reduction in direct violence. I think a lot of it has transferred to this sort of stealthy pickpocket inflation and, and debt nonsense. And where that goes, I don't know. I mean, I, I really do think that we're in a race with some pretty heavy undertows, uh, and uh, it really hopefully yeah. comes down to the efforts of, of people like us and, and people who think in the same way, uh, whether we can illuminate people enough to avoid what could be a kind of a strong undertow. You know, I mean, Roman Empire looked pretty good till it fell too for a lot of people. And that's sort of my concern that, that there is improvements, but there's this big, strong undertow that seems to be gathering momentum. I, I got it, yeah. Uh, look, here's, here's what I... Um, w well, how I understand this undertow that you're talking about, I think that on the one hand, although uh, the, the the way that we think about overt violence, it, it's being less and less valued around the world. And, and so if we're just talking about overt acts of violence, that is definitely on the decline. But what's coming up instead that is a real worry is the tendency to achieve power, not through violence, but through manipulation. Mm. Where So, okay... Let's look at it this way. Today, uh, you know, 90% of parents in the U.S. still smack their children. Um, and if you go back one generation, they would have smacked their children with a wooden spoon. And you go back three or four generations, they would have hit them with, with literally with a whip. Um, mm -hmm. so, so, yeah, you know, it's still awful on, that, on the term of overt violence, but it's definitely getting less. And with that, political overt violence is getting less too, where it's not, you know... People aren't respecting the, the iron fist quite as much as what they used to. But there's something else coming to take its place. So that if I want to be a dictator, for instance, it doesn't work so much anymore in the 21st century for me to use f direct fear. What, what, if I wanted to become a dictator of a country, instead of getting you to fear me, I would try to find ways to get you to love me. <laughs> yeah. And... Do you know, and this is this is really going on. And um, you know, I look, for instance, at the power, the enormous and hugely disproportionate power that has been accumulated now in the corporate structure in in this extreme free market fundamentalist um, world that we seem to live in, the Milton Friedman style of, you know, this crazy ultra free market where big corporations. Get in, they, they get their power through the back door by donating millions and millions mm -hmm. and millions of dollars. So do the unions, by the way, into manipulating. And, you know, you buy your politics now. And you can also take, you know, by, by owning the media channels, you can convince people of so much stuff. You can get people to buy stuff they don't want. You can get people to want stuff that they don't want, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, just a mildly technical point. Yeah. The, the, I mean, corporations are a product of the status system. They weren't invented by the free market. And also, if you are using 
political donations to gain preferential, the preferential use of force is what the state is all about. The state is an agency of, it's a monopoly on, on force. Yes. And if you donate a bunch of stuff to politicians in order to get them to exclude some comp- competitor's product from coming up and against you in the market or to give you some exclusive monopoly or some contract, that's not a free market situation. That's really more on fascism uh, in terms of corporations plus the state. I mean, it's sort of called yeah, free I mean, market, I mean, but you know, I just want to say technical about that. Absolutely. Look, you know, when I say free market, I think what is overtly called free market. I mean, but the free market, as we are told, casts a huge, huge shadow where it's not open to competition at all. It's anything but free for all of the reasons yeah. that you said. It's really about manipulation. And I think there's a tendency for, as part of our social evolution here that, you know, we're letting go of violence in one way, but geez, we're becoming better at manipulating yeah, we don't fit children it. to get them to conform. We give them these unbelievably terrible, untested drugs to to get them to sit in rows. I mean, it's which is worse? I don't know. It's really hard to say. I mean, would, would you rather be hit with a? Uh, would you rather be slapped uh, a couple a couple of times a month, or would you rather be put on Ritalin for eight years? I don't know. I, I think I'd choose I'd choose the smack. You know, so I think I see what you're saying, and if the, if that goes in the same category. Absolutely. Just hit me and get it over and done with, you know, if it comes to choosing between two evils, but they're still both evils. Um, yeah. no, that, that's so true. And that, that's industry driven, of course, that, that uh, completely uh, absurd diagnosis um, that just becomes a rationale for, for drug companies to sell more Ritalin. You know, why is it that North America consumes 90% of the world's Ritalin? Well, clearly, North America has the most difficult children, Robin. Uh, that, that's that's the cause and effect that you need to get your head around. I mean, clearly, they're just difficult. They don't listen, and they don't sit still. Of course, America has the worst educational system and the highest drugging of children. Uh, and, of course, naturally, you have to punish the children uh, for the failures of the educational system that was set up about 150 years before they were born. Because the alternative is to... Um, what is it that uh, Michelle Rees says that we are continually sacrificing the interests of children to promote a pseudo peace among adults? And I think that is a um, a very telling a very telling statement. Children have the least power. And I was always taught when I was growing up the greatest power disparities should give you the greatest ethical responsibilities, right? So the CEO can't date his secretary. Why? Because there's a power disparity. So he has to have a yeah. higher ethical standard with his secretary than he would for some woman he meets in a bar. The greatest right. power disparity as a whole is between adults and children, and yet that entire ethic gets completely thrown out the window. And it's like, well, I've got all this power, and society's really screwed up, so the people who will have to suffer the most are children, because otherwise we have to take on adults who can make our lives more difficult. Anyway, Pretty much, yeah. I mean, if we had a formula that said, you know, with power comes, comes transparency and accountability in equal measure, then things might look a little different. Um, but... Um, you know, it's interesting. Oh, you, you, you were talking earlier about this over-regulation of the world. You know, perhaps it's not just about the rules, but who the rules apply to, because we we are certainly, you know, becoming more and more regulated as a as a as a human community. You know, but there's um, so the, this this um, sense of regulation is disproportionately aimed at people, but not at corporations. They're being deregulated and deregulated and deregulated, which then, of course gives them this free kind of license to manipulate and to, and to do whatever they want and to drive the world economy in the direction that, that we, uh, we've been witnessing in the last 10 years. So yeah, If um, I blow my money yeah. on a roulette table, nobody bails me out. No, it's unfair, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the first thing, of course, uh, when um, 
the first thing you want to do when you're a big company and you have a powerful government around is to use the government to get above the law. I mean, because the government is itself above the law. I mean, uh, you know, one kid will go to jail. Uh, sorry, one kid will get huge repercussions for hitting another kid, but you can start an illegal and unjust war, cause the deaths of over a million people, and you get a pension and a presidential library named after you. So I think the, the, there's going to be a huge amount of corrosive cynicism coming out of the young as far as the rules of the elders go, uh, because uh, it all just seems to be a bunch of nonsense made up to keep those in power, uh, keep them more powerful. And uh, the rules only apply to the kids. There's, there's two other things. Sorry, just I want to make sure I don't rant your show away because you're the guest. Um, the first thing that I was struck when you were talking about the, the judging of children in classrooms, it's very interesting because the one thing I remember was when I was a kid was that, you know, some of the kids would go home. I mean, I had a friend whose his dad was a professor. His mom worked in a bookstore. They were both literate and well-read. And he went home to a sort of calm and, and rational and peaceful household that was actually a huge amount of fun to visit. Some kids would go home to these drunken brawl fests of chaos and rage and so on. And it seems to me that this is not something that it, it really, I think, adds humiliation to humiliation to judge these two children by the same standards. I don't think it's something that teachers can really do. Teachers can't fix those kinds of problems, although we pretend that they can. But I don't know. I mean, I think that seems to be a more of a community response, like a community would know where there's dysfunction within a household and provide the kind of support. But we've really atomized uh, again, not to look backwards too glowingly at the past. You know, I want to shoot the 1950s like they're through some sort of honey brand muffin of nostalgic perfection. But it seems to me that there was more of a community uh, in the past where, where people could talk more about these things. We've kind of institutionalized a lot of interventions, and I don't think that there's enough incentive. I don't think there's enough knowledge uh, to to deal with these kinds of issues. And we end up judging all the kids the same as if they all come from the same environment when they're not and just makes it even tougher on the kids who have it tough to begin with. And look, for, for that very reason, what I'm interested in is where where are the pockets of community that are resisting this kind of trend and creating something new? Because out of this kind of pressure that you're talking about and, and, and how dysfunctional it, it all is, you know, this universal grading system that is so false um, and damaging, actually, you know, where are the pockets of more intelligent education that that are resisting the pressure and growing something very, very new. And there's quite a lot of it. Uh, and it's very, very interesting. Uh, I'll, um, I'll mention, for one, Alfie Cohn, K-O-H-N, Alfie Cohn, who's an uh, education and psychology professor, professor from Harvard University. And um, brilliant guy. And, and uh, he talks a lot about how grading itself is a myth. The idea that we need to grade children on this universal standard scale is absolutely mythical. You don't need that in order to figure out which child is good at doing what, even all the way up to university level. And there's, there's a lot of evidence where grading will, in fact, diminish the academic output of a child because it's inherently shaming mm. to be compared, to be ranked to other children, to be assigned a number for your work is, is powerfully shaming. When you introduce shaming to a person, when someone starts to feel ashamed, I mean, that's such a painful emotion. And um, even talking about the brain again right now, in shame, you lose your focus. Shame is biochemically, brain chemistry, incompatible with your academic focus. 
your ability to learn, your ability to to um to form memory and to retain memory. So uh, we upset children at their cost and ours. And you don't need to grade children. You don't need homework up until children are, are, are in senior high school. That's all a myth. And this is, you know, I'm not just whistling Dixie here. This is based on a lot of very good high-quality research. You know, I really recommend that you look at Alfie Cohn, some of his videos on YouTube, as well as his books. Um, Punished by Rewards is one, and there's many more. Uh, he's got a beautiful DVD called... Um, Oh, gosh, I can't think of the name. Something to do with grading and homework and how destructive I'll, it is. I'll, so. I'll uh, put it in glowing letters on the screen So uh, when I look it up after. It's, it's just great stuff. So, so, look, there are many, many school communities around the world that are resisting that. We were able to find a primary school for our daughter that was parent-run. And we had a no-homework policy, a no-exam policy. Unfortunately, we don't, we don't have a high school that way here. But, but uh, she, she never experienced... Um, pressure to learn uh, in, in, for her whole primary school history. So for her, learning is all about pleasure. It's about passion, really. Uh, and this oh, is, yeah. This What's is the saddest thing I ever... Yeah, the saddest stuff to hear in the classroom was, was everything that we would say uh, the, the teacher would put on a movie or, or put on something, and the first thing you'd hear was, is this going to be on the test? I mean, what oh. a sad question to ask. I mean, the, the, the problem with the test, of course, is that it's an endpoint, and there's no endpoint to learning. I mean, I, I still feel completely retarded about 99.999% of the important things in the world. I've been studying this shit for 30 years. But the kids, uh, you know, it's like if you're going to drive to a hotel, when you get to the hotel, you stop driving. And if you're going to learn something for a test, you get to the test, you stop learning. And it, it becomes a grave marker rather than a, a judgment of any, any empirical v validity. You know, if, if you want to reduce somebody's academic potential, the first thing to do, the first tactic, is giving, give them an exam. And then they start working to the exam, not, not working on, on, uh, on, on just the joy of learning. Joy drives this thing much better than anything else, much better than fear and shame. And this has been tested again and again and again in the research. You know, you, 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 you pay... You can also... This applies to the workplace as well. This is an enormous myth. Everyone still believes, not everyone, a lot, a lot of people still believe that the way to get, for instance, executives in the workplace to perform better is you reward them with higher pay. And then that, in a way, that rationalizes this idea that if you remove the ceiling on pay packets, so if you give an American executive, for instance, 500 times than, than, than um, the average wage, that, that's supposed to be this equation that they will perform 500 times better and it simply does not work. And in fact, what happens is if you, I mean, we all need to be paid and we all need to be paid well enough, of course. We want a, an enjoyable life and we want security and health. But if you make the incentives all about, you know, in business, higher pay, more money, more money, or in school, more grades, more grades, more points, more, more marks, blah, 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 blah. Uh, or as they do in primary schools here, if you know, if you if you're a good boy or a good girl in class, they will give you candy at the end. You know that, or gold stars. So we, we, you know, even in school, we're starting to pay the children, right? This is a currency. The gold star system is a currency. We are paying them to behave like what we m want to make them behave. And you know what 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 that drives? People believe just blindly that that drives you know better better performance. It actually doesn't. It puts the brakes on performance. 
you know we do what you were saying earlier is this on the exam we just we work to the exam and that means we don't retain the knowledge anywhere near as well it also breeds this becomes a farm for for cheating or at the very mm, least for yeah. taking shortcuts if you're going to pay me for the, this performance what i'm going to do is i will do i'll i'll figure out a way to give you what you are asking for for the least effort i won't take risks i just will do the minimum there's a beautiful example from a piece of american research you know people were worried about literacy how can we get our kids to read more so what they did is that they started offering children these uh, vouchers that you can exchange for for junk food if you read five books uh, so all the kids in the school raced out and read five books and they all got these vouchers to, to eat some junk food that's probably terrible for their health. So everyone thinks, hey, presto, this works beautifully, doesn't it? You know, statistically, they're reading more books. And then someone decides, lo and behold, to scratch the surface a little bit. What the kids were doing is picking the books that had the least text, the bigger writing, <laughs> the more pictures. And when asked... You know, what did you understand from this book? They'd forgotten all about the damn book. They just wanted that piece of paper that, that you can exchange for a piece of greasy pizza or something. Well, and that the message is very clear that reading has no intrinsic value. It must be done for the sake of reward. Learning has no intrinsic value. It must be done for the sake of the kibbles and bits that you get from an A+. Uh, that, that these things are not pleasurable in and of themselves, but they must be done for some end that an authority controls and is going to give you. Uh, and that carves out individual motivation and joy. I mean, we are fountains of possibility, and they just it's like getting a big elephant to step on a, on a hose. It just blocks it all off and turns it into something that you become a rat running through a maze looking for cheese. Uh, and as soon as you get it, you stop running. Uh, it makes you purely reactive, inert, uh, and highly controllable, of course, because you're responding to inter external stimuli and, and uh, uh, sticks and, and carrots rather than any kind of in internal joy and desire. Anyway, I'm sure you know, we're on the same page as far as I Yeah, if you, wanna, if you want to uh, if you treat your child like a, or a child in your classroom like a rat running a maze, what you're going to get is a rat that runs a maze really well. <laughs> right. you know? And, and right. your kid gets the cheese. You know, do you want right, a self-motivated... Right you know, self-assured individual that asks questions, it's an individual that drives their own learning, that's the, that's the opposite way to do it. But the magic word you said earlier on was intrinsic. And um, there, there's a lot of work being done now and in universities to try to learn all about intrinsic motivation. That's what makes people happy, but also what drives a better economy ultimately and is academically far, far more successful when instead of paying people to, to perform, we find what will intrinsically motivate them. And that's to do with some kind of you know what what drives what makes you passionate what gives you pleasure in your heart in terms of your your learning or or your work um you know i tell you what in in my private practice every day i work with people um who are uh, who were by and large very very successful financially and professionally but they're the people that decided to be whatever a lawyer or a doctor because mummy said that that's where the money is or dad said that that's where the money is and the misery that that creates, the depression, the misery. The misery, I call this the misery of the successful. Yeah, look what I'm doing. I'm making money, and that, which is great. But guess what? I get to spend this money two weeks in the year. The rest of the time, the rest of the time, I am suffering at work day in, day out, doing something that means nothing to me, something that I don't love. And that is so heartbreaking. So often I ask people, look, 
you know, did your teachers ever ask you, who are you and what do you love? And they just blink and say, what do you mean? Why would a teacher ask me that? You know, that, that is absolutely tragic. You know, I asked people, yeah, what is. would you really wanted to do? Oh, you know, I wanted to be a whatever. I wanted to join the Navy. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be a mathematician. You know, I didn't want to be a doctor. Or I wanted to be a piano player. I wanted to be an actor. You know, this, this, this dormant, untapped passion that is a huge, unused treasure, I think, in our societies. And, you know, when a school moves towards intrinsic motivation, that really makes me happy. I think that that's some of the stuff that will produce a better world. Yeah, and I mean, if obviously, when you make money, your lifestyle adapts itself accordingly, and then you actually become very risk-averse. I mean, the idea of lowering your income to pursue a dream, okay, idiots like me on the internet will do that and go from being executives at software companies to uh, uh, yelling in, into a microphone for, for donations. But for a lot of people, it's really hard to make that adjustment because they've got themselves embedded in a whole lifestyle that it's really difficult to break the orbit of because they got to feed the beast of their consumerism and their house, their mortgage, their cars, their kids, the colleges, whatever's going on. And that is a, you know, that is a treadmill that, you know, the goal just starts to hit you on the head. It doesn't even something you can take pleasure in. Absolutely. I mean, I really, I really feel for that. A lot of people are trapped, and the longer that you leave it, the more that you feel so trapped by your own mortgage. And, and uh, I mean, how many people uh, have the energy and the heart to stop a particular profession at fifty and go back and learn something else? You know, or at forty even. It's very, very difficult. Yeah. So, you know, the, the the earlier that we start, and you know, the moment that children start to speak, how about listening to their passion and honouring that? And I'll tell you what, if you want good behaviour amongst children, this is an enormous recipe for that. When, when they are given opportunities to do what they're interested in, what they love. And, um, you know, somebody once said to me, I, I had a little debate, you know, about the kinds of schools that I love for children. And this woman said to me, so you're telling me that if your child says, I just want to eat chocolate all day long, that that's what we should do, you know, which is a very cynical response. And I said to her, is that what you think a child is? Do you really think that a child is a person that will just eat chocolate all day? I, I don't think you, I, I, honestly, I don't think you've met a child. You know, children are, as we were saying earlier, they are hungry for knowledge. Even their play, often their play has some kind of an educational um, outcome for them. They learn so much about negotiation, communication, you know, imagination, problem solving, inventiveness, etc., etc., etc. You know, and I think that there's a very distinct role for parents and teachers to, to provide opportunity, but also be guides, you know, to keep, to help the child to be grounded, to, to um, invite them to ask, you know, the kinds of questions that will take them to the most satisfying answers in the world, you know. So, you know, it is still, you know, for me, it's not about neglecting the child and leaving them, leaving them alone with their self-education. I think education is primarily about relationship. We still do. The adults have a very important role in that. Yeah, it is a tragically narcissistic society that believes it has nothing to learn from its own children. Uh, it's, it's a society that believes it has all the answers and that any time children deviate from those answers, the children is axiomatically incorrect. And of course, uh, we would never accept this with any other segment of society this kind of prejudice, this kind of uh, downgrading of possibility, this kind of negative view. You know, if I said, well, uh, you know, uh, blacks are born with original sin and the devil has them in its grasp or whatever, I mean, 
I mean, a racist, I mean, a horrible thing to say, but you can say yeah. all of these kinds of negative things about children. You have to control them or they'll run wild and, and they'll just eat chocolate or you can have these incredibly negative views of children and no, you, nobody calls you and says, that's incredibly prejudiced. And in fact, it just says, uh, it says everything about you and nothing about the children around you. Uh, but that's, that's still something we have to get to. The, the promotion of children to full-on personhood is still something that we are uh, distant from. You know, we, we've worked with minorities, fantastic, we're getting closer with that. We've worked with women, fantastic, we're getting closer with that. Um, we're even working with prisoners of war, fantastic, we're getting closer with that. But the extension of personhood to kids, oh, that's gonna be, a, that's gonna be I think, one of the biggest steps that we ever have to take. Did you know that um, in England, um, when, when, when they developed the first, I think it was a Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, Mm. That had to animals, eh? Th that happened before they had the, uh, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children politically. Animals yeah. come first. A everybody comes first. The child is at the end of the line every time, historically, and it's still going on now, which is just an extraordinary thing. You know, we tend to either, we, I think children are under attack. No question, they are under attack. And either we attack them or we overindulge them. And then blame them for for whatever the result of that is. So it still it still ends up as an attack, you know. We well, I think the overindulgence. Yeah, you know, I think the overindulgence come out of comes out of a guilt of absence. I mean, if you've been away from your yeah. kid all day and you've got an hour before bedtime, you don't want to have rules and conflicts, and you just tend to give them what they want because you've been away all day and. That kind of parental guilt is different, I think, from the one we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation. But it has significantly formative effects too. I would argue. Yeah, I don't have any time for you, so here's some of that stuff that you saw on TV that's really expensive. I've bought it for you. Here you go. Show it off to the other kids in school. You know, that really, really now, works for, for uh, you know, marketers. Oh, yeah, it certainly does. Um, it's uh, Connection is the opposite of consumerism. If you're happy with your company, you don't need as much stuff. Now, listen, Robert, I want to make sure we don't talk all night and also want to and obviously talk to you after the show about why you've taken all of Canada's sunshine and how I can conceivably get it back. Uh, I hope that you can fax it uh, up here. Uh, but I, if, if there's just, a possibility... It's just on loan. It's just on loan, okay? Okay. And we'll we'll okay, take but... good care of it. We'll give it back just sure. as we found it. Right. Um, but if I'd like to get you back on uh, to to talk about uh, some of the we've obviously done a fair amount of, um, of of criticism, which I think is 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 helpful and healthy. But uh, if we could have another show, perhaps to talk about, I'm very interested in the support uh, that you feel, and and I think you make a good case for the support that needs to be extended to parents, because that's something we can all do. You know, we can't end fiat currency, we can't stop war, we can't uh, dismantle dictatorships with our bare teeth, but uh, we can reach out to support parents within communities that we know. Um, sure. prior to mistakes being irrevocable. And so um, if I can yank you back on uh, some other time, it would be great to talk about that. Very happy to do that. All right. And uh, if you could mention your website to my listeners, I want to make sure I drive as many people to your uh, work as possible. Sure. Here's my website, ouremotionalhealth.com. But there are, um, how do you say in Canada, hyphens or dash? Um, hyphen. Yeah, hyphen. hyphen. So our hyphen emotional hyphen health dot com. Yep. 
All right, fantastic. And um, I will put links to the books, uh, which I recommend. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I, really, I also wanted to com- commend you on your writing style, which is you know passionate and, and eloquent and focused and uh, motivating. And um, I, I write a little myself, and I, I really do uh, want to compliment you on that. I know that takes a lot of work, and I think you did a great job with the books. And uh, I hope that we can get them some, some more exposure through this. A venue, but uh, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. I mean, as a dad, as as as, as a therapist, as a writer, as a communicator, um, it's it's great to you know look across the night sky and see some other stars out there above the mountaintop. So thank you for all of that. You know, I really appreciate that, and thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you. I, I did know you through uh, through YouTube, so it's nice to meet you uh, almost in person, and uh, from the other side of the planet. And uh, so uh, let's keep doing this. All right. Have us have a great. I don't have to tell you to have a great day because it looks like a pretty great day out there. But uh, thanks for your time, and I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Take care.